0: You know, I, back in 2017, I bought my first house uh, here locally, and the owners were Arizona snowbirds that were finally migrating south for good, and uh, they threw in most of their stuff because of that turnkey. So as a bachelor, first-time homeowner, it was a sweet deal, and they included their washer and their dryer, which this, this it looked better than it did, does now, but um, this, they were probably from the mid-90s, I'm going to guess, the washer and dryer. Um, the couple was older than that. But, uh, they, uh, so these were about t- probably at least 20 years old when I bought them. And, at, and they worked great at first. Um, we, I married Jill. We moved into our new home, and they slowly but surely became less washier and less dryery. y um, And instead of 45 minutes for a load, it would take like 90 minutes plus. We started to detect a concerning burning smell. And because I have the mechanical prowess of a two-year-old, um, I called my friend Seth. And so we uh, replaced uh, the mo- one of the motors in there, got rid of the burning smell, but it wasn't long before fire moved to flood, and before you know it, it is leaking, which coincided wonderfully with our garage drain being plugged up, so free swimming pool for Lucy. Um, I called Seth again, but even this time, Seth had met his match, uh, the part that needed Replaced was in the middle of the machine, and over time the parts had become so rusted and corroded we couldn't even replace the washers and the bolts. And so there was this specific moment when Seth and I are looking at each other, uh, going that we were covered in sweat and grease and, and disappointment. And uh, I should clarify, he was covered in those things. I was watching him. Um, <laughs> again, I have no. We we realized there was one solution, and that was to get rid of the stupid washer, right? Get a new one. But, and you can't write this stuff. Literally, as I was saying that, my other friend Eric bursts into the garage, like next-door neighbor sitcom style, like, hey, buddy, right? (laughs) And he he said, what's up? So we told him what's up. And he said, actually, funny enough, my sister and brother-in-law just upgraded washer and dryer, uh, and they're getting rid of their old ones. And there's nothing wrong with them. They just are simply upgrading. um, Would you like them for free? And, you know, giddy-up, right? Uh, Nearly fainted with joy right there on the garage floor. Uh, Here were my options, right? I could try to continue to fix these 30-year-old washer and dryer with 30,000 rusty pieces currently littered all over my garage floor, Um, Or I could just simply say, it's time to get rid of those and embrace these new free ones. Now, you can guess what I did, right? Here is an infinitely better working version for free. All I had to offer them, uh, Bryce and Elise, was my gratitude. When Bryce Bryce came over the next day with these these new gifts, I almost kissed the guy, right? (laughs) Almost, right? Cooler heads prevailed, but... As a, as a pastor, I saw a sermon illustration written all over this thing, and we're going to see in, in the Gospel of John this morning, in chapter 12, a similar choice that we're given, that you and I can stubbornly try to um, continue to do things our own way. We can try to continue to try to fix what is broken beyond repair, or we can receive what is Freely offered in Jesus, a newer, infinitely better version of life that actually works according to our creator's intention. Last week we saw the launch of Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' ministry leading up to his death and burial and resurrection. And, and, he, and he comes into Jerusalem on this donkey. And we're going to see this morning, he, we, that story continues. And he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And what we're going to see is the hour for what? What hour? And we're going to see today the the mission of Jesus. We're going to see God's method, uh, how he'll carry out that mission. And then finally, what our response uh, is, what our options are in responding to what Jesus is offering. So number one, uh, we'll have look at God's mission to glorify the Son. If you have your Bibles, John 12, pick it up in verse 20. I've got the CSB in front of me. It says, now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So remember, it's Passover time. We're celebrating, and like any good party, it doesn't start until the Greeks arrive, right? So here they come. Now, the, we should specify, Greeks didn't mean literally from, like, nation-state of Greece. Uh, but in that day, a Greek culturally-dominated world, uh, the Greek was, uh, Greeks were a way to refer to the non-Jews. Or, you know, see in the New Testament, a lot of times, uh, references as Gentiles. Those are non-Jews who have come to participate at the Passover festival. Now, they could have been from close by. People come from all over the empire, but uh, there was a region, a Greek uh, culture and speaking area up in the Decapolis, which was just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It wouldn't have been too far to travel from there. These could have either been full-fledged Jewish converts... Called proselytes that were there to worship alongside. They could have just been, as many were at the time, admirers of the Jewish faith. And there they would have been permitted to enter even as far as into the court of the Gentiles at the temple in Jerusalem. But these Greeks come, and let's see what they say in verse 21 they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip. Went and told Jesus. Now it says, We want to, to see. This meant more than just like observing Jesus if he's like on, on exhibit. Right? This was to engage with Jesus in a conversation. They wanted to chat with him. Now notice they go to one of Jesus' disciples, Philip. So Philip is, it had the Greekest sounding name out of the 12 of them. And he also says here he's from Bethsaida, which is up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which is close. Uh, to the Decapolis, so it's likely that this was uh, the disciple they knew him or his family or they said he's Greek, we're Greek as far as the the Gentile portion there uh, he would relate to us, he might be the best in uh, to Jesus, that's what happens to me every summer when Italian tourists show up here and they say Frankino where's the best pizzeria and I say we got a lot of pizza owners in our church so I'm not going to specify one (laughs) (laughs) So Phil, Philip runs this by uh, Andrew, and uh, he, he says, you know, should we take these guys to, to, to Jesus? Now, why would he want to check? Well, remember when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two? He had said, go to uh, the Jews first. Not, don't, don't preach yet to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. So, so there would be a reason for pause here. Jesus, is it time to go? To, are we welcoming in the Greeks? What does this look like? So they come to Jesus and, and look at his response. Jesus replied to them. Now, verse 23, um, Jesus, we know, is the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings, right? We'll also see in this text, he is the king of the indirect answer. And watch what he says. They say, we want to see Jesus. Look at Jesus in verse 23. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And the rest of his teaching, it doesn't address the, the Greeks at all in, uh, at first blush. But Jesus isn't being evasive, he's not ignoring them, he's not being cute. As often, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Now, up until now, in John's gospel, he has said, the hour is coming. He always was talking about a future tense. But here, Jesus said, the hour has come. Or in the the words of the wise Rafiki, it is time, right? Now, it is time for what? What is it time for? He says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that's a Bible word. What does it really mean? We we said a couple weeks ago, the word glory means beauty made visible. Beauty that you can see. And so he says, it's time for the Son of Man, a reference to himself, for the world to see the beauty of what I'm about to accomplish, to see the full extent of my Father's love. So really, he is going to ultimately answer The Greeks questions, we want to see Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is is the Greeks just drop out of the scene. We never hear from them again. We don't know if they got interviewed with Jesus. But I think that's because it's irrelevant to John's storyline. Whether or not they get to see Jesus in person right now is inconsequential because they're not going to be able to truly see him, truly know him until he's fully glorified. His hour has come and it's gone so what do we see here in the opening text is that God's mission, the hour, why Jesus came, is to reveal the beauty of what his God is doing through him. To glorify the son of man. But how does he glorify the son and, and, and what is that going to accomplish? For that, let's look at his method. It's what he talks about next. Glory through death. Now, when you hear it says he 's going to receive glory, he will be glorified. When you hear of getting glory, what would come in, what kind of things would come into your mind? Like I think about a championship team coming uh, home after winning the title and celebrating ticker tape parade, a whole town coming out and going nuts. I think about a, a banquet being put on for a Nobel Peace Prize winner or some uh, person who 's done all these amazing things. I think about being immortalized in a statue, someone who 's brave and handsome and Valiant, and Google Images just pulled that up. It's amazing. But how will the Son of God receive glory? It's not at all how we would anticip- what we would anticipate, what we would expect. He shows, first of all, he will be glorified in fruitful death to self. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So death certainly doesn't sound like glory, right? But we know. uh, A seed dying, is that a failure? It's not, right? Of course. That is the purpose of the seed. It's glory, if you will. The purpose of the seed and its death is to germinate a great crop. And the seed's glory is seeing a beautiful harvest, life for many through the death of this one so likewise, is Jesus' death a failure? We see clearly it's not, right? His death generates a bountiful harvest, a beautiful harvest of souls. Now, how would he be glorified? Through his death and his suffering, which is counterintuitive, right? But it's, I love the finer point that D.A. Carson puts on it in his commentary on John. He says not just that death and suffering had to precede glorification. And this is a helpful point. It's not just saying, well, first he had the suffering and and the death, and then he was glorified. Carson argues Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of his glory. You want to see the beauty of Jesus. Don't look after the cross. It is the cross. It is what he accomplished on Calvary. That's why we sing the words, and we're going to sing these at the end of the sermon. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride which is exactly where we see this thing going next look at verse 25 the one who loves his life Jesus says will lose it and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life these are some hard words from Jesus he's teaching a principle that death is necessary to generate life applying not just for him but for his followers. He says, the one who loves his life will lose it, the one who hates his life in this world will keep it. So what's he talking about? He says, he who loves his life. To love one's life was equated with what we'd call a self-idolatry, to make myself God, to elevate myself above all others, to really set myself up as creator, not creation. And this is the heart of, of all sin. And, and, and because it necessarily involves a denial of God's godness. If I'm trying to play the part of God, I'm denying the one who is God and trying to limit the attempts of the one who is sovereign over my life. And what, what Jesus teaches here is such a person loses his life. To idolize ourselves, ironically, is to destroy ourselves. To damn ourselves before the one who really is God. It's To live out of reality. He says to hate your life. And that can be a, a puzzling expression. Right? The Jewish people use this as an expression in the day to talk about fundamental preference. When Jesus taught in other places in the synoptics, he said he who does not hate his own father, mother, sister, brother. Well, we know Jesus doesn't teach contrary to God's heart. Right? He's not saying hate them, don't love them. What's he saying? We must, if we don't fundamentally prefer Jesus above all things, cannot follow him as Lord and Savior. So here he's saying, our fundamental preference cannot be ourselves and our way. This is not a call to self-loathing. This is a call to be free from self-obsession. And that can be on the one side thinking how great we are, or continually thinking about how horrible we are. Both of those are a preoccupation with self What he's calling us to is a denial of our own desires as being the supreme decision maker and carrot dangling in our lives, which is what actually, he says here, results in keeping our lives forever. Now look, he continues on in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servants also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Us to follow him to be his servants. Now, this is not a mere rejecting of myself and my desires. It's the replacement of myself with another and his desires. It's to follow the person of Jesus. See, this is to see. He says we're to see ourselves as a follower of Jesus, a servant of Jesus. And if we follow him, if we serve him, that means his path becomes our path. Jesus's path to glory was through the crucifixion he experienced on the cross. And so the believer to follow him is to die to self our own will and to follow the path. And what does he say it results in? He says the father will what? The father will honor him. Like this is the end game, right? No sweeter privilege than to stand before the father and receive his honor. But it still sounds scary, right? For us to, we can't just pretend like it's all cotton candy, and yet following Jesus will be great. I have no problem in any way, shape, or form. And Jesus models this for us in in this next portion. So Jesus' glory uh, comes through his death, fruitful death to self, and he teaches it's in joyful living for the Father's glory. Joyful living for the Father's glory. I get this from the next passage here, verses 27 and 28. Now my soul, Jesus says, is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? That is why I came to this hour. Father, he says, glorify your name. So Jesus had to experience death in order to be glorified. But also part of what is so wonderful, glorifying about Jesus and his death is his refusal to seek his own glory. To seek his own. He is committed to do what fully pleases the Father. To die for himself and to live for another's glory. Jesus shows us the recipe. A death to my own will and to live for the sake of another, namely, his father, is the glory of love. Right? Peter Cetera had it right. He just didn't know he was singing about Jesus. Right? I am the man who will fight for your honor. Nobody's with me? Cool. <laughs> Probably for the best. Um, all through John's gospel, we have seen Jesus in an unswerving commitment to his father's will. To subordinate himself to his father's desires. And this culminates here in this spectacular, spectacular expression of self-sacrifice for the glory of his father's name. And I love watching the, the love of the Trinity on full display here. He says, the Son of Man has come to be glorified. The Father is, it says, this is all about glorifying my Son. And what does the Son say? All I want is my Father's glory. The Trinity instructs us of what selfless love looks like. All I want is the, is, the, is the good of the other, the glory of the other. And that selfless reciprocation of love in the Trinity is a beautiful thing to behold in John. But notice here, even in the midst of that, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. The word troubled here that he used in the Greek signified a, a revulsion, a horror. There was anxiety bound up in this word, an extreme agitation. That, that Jesus is freaked out. He says, I am troubled, but what should I say? Save me from this thing? It reminds me of other places in, in the synoptics where Jesus says, what? Father, if there's any other way. He's in the garden and he says, take this cup from me, yet not my will. Yours be done. As Wet drops of blood come from his forehead. I love how Jen Waller from the, the Freedom House, she says that it's giving a scared yes. That, that there are times in our life when we're called to do something that freaks us out, like and we see the difficult path ahead, and yet, I think it's okay to say yes. This is part of the walk of faith, right? Is to say yes and start walking in it, and then trust that he will catch our emotions up The rest of us up with that action that we're walking in. And I think this is why Jesus was so troubled. This is the meeting uh, of this immovable force and unstoppable object, right? Like the horror of his death as he sees what's coming. Jesus knows full well what he's about to get into. And yet that's met with the, the passion that he has to obey his father, to do what his father wills. And man, what a model that our Savior gives to us here. That we would say, Father, there are times in my life, and I'm sure in yours, where you're going, this thing that you're calling me to, this is so hard. I have anxiety and agitation. I'm freaked out beyond measure. And yet I have to trust that your way, your will is better than mine. We, followers and servants of Jesus, just like our master, are called to die to ourselves and live for the glory of the Father. You and I were created for this. Page one of our Bibles. We're told that we're to image God. What does that mean? It means that you and I are to... We were created to show the glory of God, right? To see the beauty of God in the way that we live our lives. The way that we love like God loves. The way that we care for this world. The way God cares for this world. And this is the true path to freedom. This is the true path to joy. See, a lot of times, especially culturally, we get so mixed up on this that we think that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. That's slavery to our own desires, Real freedom is the ability to do what you were designed to do. It's only when the bird's wings are unclipped and released from the cage and it's soaring across the sky that it's truly free. And we, brothers and sisters, can only be free when we're living alongside the life of love for God and others that our designer intended us for in the first place. To live for God's glory is not torture. It's not boring. It's not restricting. It's the only way to be free. Does There is a cost, death and suffering. This is why Jesus models not just a begrudging willingness, a fine, right? A passionate desire, although it is a scared, yes, to bring his father glory. We see joy from, the, from Jesus in this. So we see glory through his death and living for the father's glory. But then what it, what it accomplishes in the rescuing and restoring of people to himself. Let's continue on. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. Then a voice from heaven, verse 28, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. That's interesting language. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. We hear God's voice here. The only other times we, we we hear his voice recorded in the Gospels are at His baptism and, and, his, and his Jesus, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' transfiguration. This is a sign for those, he says, this is for your sake. For those who had ears to hear, that that it is time, as Rafiki said. Those Greeks have triggered the hour that troubles Jesus, right? It troubles him, and yet it resolves him to joyfully glorify his father. But what exactly will happen? In this hour, to glorify his father. What is accomplished through Jesus' death? Why'd he die? Well, he lists four things here that happen. Uh, The first one, the judgment of this world. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, in context here, the world is talking about mankind in rebellion against its own creator. And what Jesus is saying here is they will be judged. Those in rebellion against God, there's a judgment against that rebellion, right? They're standing before, and now... What's interesting is this is the exact opposite of what they think is going on. Again, D.A. Carson speaks to this. He says the world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus at the cross, but in reality, it was the cross passing judgment on them. To reject the death of Jesus for our sins is to reject the Father who sent him, which seals the way this story ends for us, seals our doom. And separation from the Father. But he also says the ruler of this world will be cast out. The judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is a reference to Satan, to evil and and all of his cronies. The cross is going to look like the triumph of Satan. But it actually is his own defeat, right? It's the process of his throne in this world being overturned and given to another How is he going to, how is Jesus going to cast out the ruler of this world? Colossians 2 tells us this, and it's beautiful, a beautiful truth for us to set our minds on. Jesus, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations, this debt of sin that you and I owed. He says... With That was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. Amen and hallelujah. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus, in him. So Jesus shut the mouth of our accuser by paying our debts. He's called the accuser of the brethren. That when Satan whispers into our ears, condemnation, and he says, you've done too much, you've gone too far, that sin was too bad, you're condemned in it. We look at Satan and we say, shut your fat mouth, fool. (laughs) Because my God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, evil one, am forgiven because he was forsaken. And I'm accepted because he was condemned. And in this moment, on the cross, as Jesus pays all of our debts, he seals the mouth of the accuser and is in the process of casting him out on his hoisted throne. And then he goes on to say that he's going to be lifted up. And Jesus says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, so there's a lifting up of Jesus. And this was a word play because in one sense, to lift up is to praise, to exalt, right? To say how awesome somebody is. And he is going to be exalted and shown how great he is. But how? As he's lifted up on the cross. As he's literally, physically hoisted up on a cross, he will be praised. Again, his hour of glory. And he says, if I am raised up on the cross, what will happen? Finally, he says, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. And he say, wait a second. Is this teaching a universalism that every person on earth it's going to be drawn to Jesus that will place their faith. Well, we know in the rest of the story of the Bible and in our lives that that's certainly not true. Remember the context here. Remember the Greeks are coming, and this is the context. This is what's triggered this whole conversation. Jesus isn't saying literally every individual on earth without exception. All people means all kinds of people. The Jews, the Greeks, no matter what ethnicity, you are no matter what walk of life no matter what sins you've committed there are no exceptions to the kind of person that jesus is drawing by his love and this brothers and sisters is the dividing line john 3 he told us god loved the world and he sent his son that whoever believes in him that's the dividing line not jew versus gentile not, not this kind of sin versus that kind of sin. Those who believe Jesus and those who don't. Those who hate their own life versus those who stubbornly cling to it all the way to the end. Which begs the question, how do we respond to what Jesus is teaching here? Let's look at our response. Believe it or not. We're going to see here the crowd by and large makes their decision. And it's not, not the wise one. Verse 37, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. All these signs that we've seen in the Gospel of John. You want proof that I'm the Messiah, that I'm God? Like, think about all the things he's done. And we just literally heard from God booming from heaven. How many of us say, if I heard from God like that, I'd have no doubt left, right? But we see time and time and again in Scripture, that's not true. If you have a hard heart, you will deny the most obvious sign right in front of your face. But this gets a little bit stickier. Look at Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, He, talking about God, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Remember, Isaiah had that vision god and his throne in isaiah 6 interesting here he says he saw jesus's glory figured that one out but now what's going on here because it said in verse 37 the jews didn't believe but then it says here well this fulfills scripture that god said he would harden their hearts blind their eyes and they wouldn't be able to believe so the question we're left with is wait did the crowds choose not to believe or did god choose for them not to believe we're once again at the tension point of god's free will and, and man's, or excuse me, man's free will and God's sovereignty. And don't worry, I'm about to easily explain what scholars have not been able to for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? <laughs> so Isaiah is quoting in context here, uh, or Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And, and in the context, this is Isaiah calling out to a people that were about to be sent uh, to exile in Babylon. God is speaking through his prophet, his messenger, to people who have already disobeyed, broke his covenant, rejected his way. And this was a judgment on their sin. He says, this is the way you want to go. And what we see in Isaiah is God's doubling down on their own unbelief, right? On their already hardened hearts. He's hardening what's already in the process of hardening, doubling down on that and sending them into exile. So this does not remove their responsibility. It's important to note that Israel was already being addressed for their hard hearts. It's not like they were going little, little innocent Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some belief. And he's like, no right? I'm going to, no matter what, in your, in your face, this curse about like, he's not working against their wills here. He's casting a judgment on their disobedience, on their unbelief. But why does he do that? He does it to bring, bring his people to an end of themselves. Because what's going to happen while they're in Babylon? He cries out for them to turn back, we see in prophecies in the Old Testament, He says, if my people, who I harden their hearts, doubling down on their hard hearts, sent them to exile, if they will humbly pray, turn from their sin and their wicked way, I'll hear them and I'll heal them. God's hardening of Israel's heart there to send them to Babylon was not ultimate condemnation. It was to bring them to the end of themselves in hopes of reconciliation. He's bringing them to a place of rock bottom. Even God's hardening is a mercy, not to condemn, but for repentance. How many times have I seen this in my own life, right? I was addicted to pornography for almost 20 years. The Lord had to bring me, graciously bring me to the end of myself, allow me to hit rock bottom and turn around and go, there's nowhere left to go, and finally, truly call out to him and say, save me, and to see his faithfulness in my life. And the same thing's happening here. Just like in Isaiah's day, once again, Jesus comes call his people to turn but what do we see on page one of this gospel he came to his own people and his own people stiff-armed him they did not receive him now we know that it's not every individual as we've been reading through the gospel there's always a remnant his own disciples are following him not everyone as we'll see in the next couple chapters but we see believers from within Israel that's why I would personally say I don't think John's addressing the individual eternal fate Of people here, but how God is sovereignly orchestrating their rejection as means of salvation. Remember, John's writing this 50 years later from when these events happened, and he's got a lot of Jewish readership at the time, and most of them are they're they're going, "Wait a second, So most of our people rejected Jesus, and you want us to believe that he's the Messiah? Like we're siding with the majority, right? John anticipates that rebuttal. He says, "No, listen, listen. (laughs) This is all part." of god's plan even his own people's rejection of him is part of that plan remember jesus just said the hour has come but why now well, every prophecy is in alignment that Jesus' death he's showing is not a failure it's not going outside of the plan it is the plan it's the only plan remember the hour was triggered by who the greeks coming by Israel's very rejection of Jesus, and, and Romans 9 through 11 unpacks all of this, Jesus being killed, he resurrects and births a new family. That for the first time, the Gentiles are welcomed into this covenant community alongside of believing Jewish people. Because remember, Jesus taught, unless a seed dies, unless the seeds die, it's out of the very rejection of Jesus, out of his death will come an abundant harvest, including the Jewish people many of these very people who are, re- are rejecting here in John 12 will come to faith in him in Acts chapter 1. He said, go, be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, and then ripple out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he's showing here, if God's promise has failed when his own people reject him, no, no, he is showing that his greatness extends to be able to sovereignly use even their rejection to accept, Those who would believe. Email me, we'll talk. There's a lot more there. Verse forty-two and forty-three, he says, Nevertheless, many did not believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Many of them they said, I believe, I believe what I'm seeing. But I know the cost. And there are many here who said, I'm not willing to hate my own life in fundamental preference for who Jesus is and what he's calling us into. I thought of Gollum as he's falling into the pit of Mount Doom, stubbornly clinging on to his precious. The very thing that he thinks will bring him everlasting joy is the very thing that seals his fate. And we have people around us doing that every single day day and but for the grace of God there go I we got to choose how to respond we got to deal with this guys it's like Jesus is making a claim and we have to decide if he's telling the truth or if he's lying circle it back to the beginning I had a choice to make with a washer and dryer right there was only one smart decision but I had to make that choice right I could try to fix what was beyond repair or receive this free, better model that would actually wash and dry our clothing. And Jesus is teaching, man, you can, you can hold on to the old model and try to stubbornly make it work, or you can let go of it and receive from me freely the only way to live a life that will be honored by the Father and bring you joy and freedom. And we go, well, why in the world would anybody reject that? Who would turn that down? And why would you turn that down? It is the hard-hearted pride of our flesh. And it comes out in a couple different ways. There's an arrogant way. Like I could have chosen that garage to go, you know what? I'm going to prove my manliness. I'm going to fix this thing. Actually, I'm going to watch Seth prove my manliness. (laughs) Because I want the credit. I want to be known as a man who can fix his own washer and dryer. Right? And the glory that that will receive me. It's foolish, right? But man, don't we do the same thing all the time? That's what self-righteousness is all about. I'll improve my life. I'll fix what's broken. I'm in control. I can make myself acceptable. We even use religious language, right? I'll make myself acceptable before God. But like Frank Sinatra, we we determine we must do it my way. But then for some of us, there's the insecurity of pride. That looks at ourselves and goes, no, 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 this is a hot mess. And in fact, it's way beyond repair. <laughs> like, there's nothing I could do, and there's certainly no way that God is going to be able to repair this. And Justin, you don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've done. You don't know that what's been broken. Like, there's, there's no coming back from this. Look at me. The gospel says that old version cannot work, and it will never work, but that's okay. Because Jesus is offering you something new and something free. We can try to fix our old self or we can receive what Jesus is offering and only in that be able to do what we were originally created to do. Show the world how beautiful our God is in the way that we live in our new life in Christ. Father, we thank you for these words. I know they they challenged my heart this week as I see the infinite ways that I I attempt to reflect fix and repair what's broken or don't trust you that really what you're giving me is new and better and trustworthy and able to sustain me the so father i'm just simply praying if there's anybody in this room today that's never forsaken let go of the old version and received what christ is offering that today would be that day i would love nothing more than do a bunch of new baptisms next week and father i also know there are brothers and sisters in this room with me we, we still battle with this same thing. We try to go back and we pick up some rusty pieces and parts and we try to put it together or we hide in the shame and condemnation of our brokenness. Would you purge us of pride as we, as we sang earlier? You take our eyes off of ourselves, free us from a self-obsession and put our eyes squarely on the wonderful cross and believe Jesus' call that bids me to come and die and find in him I can truly live. In his glorious name that all God's people said.